been this semester at RUF are looking at encounters with Jesus that people have uh, in the book of John. John is one of the four Gospels, and uh, we are kind of zooming in on these different encounters. So we're, we're skipping bigger chunks of John so that we can focus in on these encounters. And tonight's is super important, kind of difficult, uh, difficult both that it's a long passage, also that the topic is difficult, but we had ice cream already, so we're ready to talk about shame, right? A couple things I want to say on the front end before we uh, jump in and do this. This is the longest dialogue that Jesus has with anybody in all of the four Gospels. It's the longest dialogue that we have with, between Jesus and anyone in all the four Gospels. Now, I don't want to read too much into that. But that at least means that we ought to pay attention. And that there's something important going on here. Furthermore, this encounter with this woman at the well in John 4 is situated directly after what we looked at last week. Jesus meeting with a man named Nicodemus uh, at night. Now, Nicodemus, as we saw, if you were here, if you weren't, that's fine. Uh, I, I record these. They're on podcast if you ever miss, a, miss or have a night class or, or whatever. But you could listen to it. Nicodemus, we saw, was a very religious man, um, very upright, very respected in that society uh, for a whole host of reasons. The woman we're about to see is in many ways like the opposite of Nicodemus. The first way that she's the opposite is that she's a female. And that needs to be stated because in that culture and still in many cultures and even sometimes in our culture, uh, more often than is than we would ever want to admit, uh, women are not esteemed as highly as men. It was certainly true back then. We know this from historical records. Women's testimonies couldn't be entered into court. Uh, they couldn't um, hold certain offices and do a lot of different things. So she's different than Nicodemus in that she's a man. Secondly, she's different in that she's a Samaritan as opposed to a Jewish person. Now, that really matters. There is a lot here we could unpack, um, but a few things that that are worth touching on. Uh, Jewish people and Samaritan people hated each other by the time Jesus arrived on the scene. Um, It is racial, it's cultural, it's ethnic, and it is religious hatred. Uh, They hate each other um, really at a level that's hard to fathom, but I'll, I'll try to get there for a little bit, uh, in a little way for us. At the height of the civil rights movement in this country, um, if you were a Klansman, part of the Ku Klux Klan, then if you you needed to get to another part of the city, and between you and that part of the city was what uh, you had had deemed the inferior race, then you would go around. You would not walk through that part of the city for two different reasons. One is that you deemed those people to be inferior savages. Inferior savages. You, you just assumed they would kill you if you walked through because that's what beasts and savages do. That's how a clansman would think. Second, they were inferior. You didn't want to be made unclean. Your racism made you superior to them in every way, and that would mean that you needed to be separate. In this day that we see this story, if you were a Jew, it was like that. You would not travel into Samaria. 
you would go around to get to Galilee, which is where some of your family might live, which is up on the north side of Samaria. It would take two days to go straight from uh, the south side, Judea, to Galilee. If you went through Samaria, it would take two days. But if you went around, it would take six days. And the Jews said, yes, we'll go around. And this isn't an anti-Semitic statement. This is a historical statement. Jews viewed the Samaritans as less than, and so they would go to great lengths to avoid them. The third way that this woman differs from Nicodemus is that she is immoral. If Nicodemus was very moral and religious, this woman is immoral and irreligious in that sense. Um, We'll get to this shortly, but I'll just tell you on the front end. This woman had five husbands and is now living with a man who's not her husband. Now, we could speculate all day long on why she had been divorced five times. Uh, Maybe that was their fault. Maybe they had kind of left her and that was common back then. Or maybe it was her fault. We don't really know. But what we do know is that her living with this man uh, outside of wedlock was certainly uh, not tolerated. That was not respected. That was an immoral behavior back then. Okay, so we at least know that much. So with that said, let me read this passage for us. And I mentioned it's a little bit long, but it's just hard to cut out. Okay, so I promise I won't sit up here and talk forever. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. Jesus left Judea, Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And John inserts this kind of parenthetical thought. He says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, 
And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Just then, Jesus' disciples came back. They marveled that He was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Down in 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that as we now talk about this passage, I pray that you would meet us where we are. Your Holy Spirit would come and, and fill our hearts. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see the good, true message of your gospel that is bound up in who Jesus is and what he came to do. We pray this and ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, this spring, while uh, many of you were consumed with high school graduation and wrapping all those things up or uh, final exams here at TU maybe, um, that, that period of, of the school year gets to be less busy for me in some ways because y'all are uh, busy doing school and all that. And so um, I, I read more. I probably waste more time on the Internet than I should, but I deserve it, right? Uh, so one way that I wasted time this spring is I read about and found out about this thing called the Fire Festival. Anybody hear about the Fire Festival this spring? Great. Um, <laughs> seeing none. Uh, Fire Festival was uh, a music and entertainment festival that was uh, planned by Ja Rule and a guy named Billy McDonald. And they came together to plan this thing. And it wasn't just going to be like a ho-hum music festival. It was a festival for the elite. It was situated in the Bahamas. And they lined it up with all these top acts of talent and artists and all this stuff. Uh, They were to have... And I'm not crazy about this, but they were to have models just walking around. And it was just whatever you might think of as opulence or hedonism, just kind of living life in the most luxurious, if not ostentatious way. Like, that's what it was supposed to be. And the price reflected that. Just to get there, I'm sorry, just to get in, you had to get there. Just to get into the festival, it was $2,000 and tickets went all the way up to $10,000. And the lodging was supposed to be amazing, and it was, uh, it was really billed as a big deal. The reason I got interested in it is that a few days before the festival was to happen, I saw an article that started talking about it, and it was saying, like, people are really starting to wonder if this is going to happen. Right? There had been so much hype and publicity for so long, and then as it got closer and closer, questions began to mount. People's emails weren't getting returned. Like Some stuff was starting to go wrong. But still, people thought, well, you know, maybe they're just busy down there. And so they, they loaded their, their planes. Some of them took ships down there, their yachts. And when they got to the Bahamas, it was as bad as they could imagine. Not only... Were there not luxurious, posh accommodations? There were only pop-up tents, like tailgating pop-up tents. Nowhere to sleep at all. (laughs) Instead of having amazing food custom prepared by chefs, the reports were that there were literally like 10 boxed lunches, and that was it. 
And instead of having their bags brought in to these luxurious accommodations, they were delivered to the port by some barge, and they were on a metal shipping container. And they had to go there, carry them off the shipping container, and back to this place with nowhere to stay. It was a disaster. And so, not surprisingly, when people writing this and following this story and writing the articles tried to get a hold of McDonald and Ja Rule, the famous line was what? Can't be reached for comment. That's understandable. Just this failure upon failure, and what do they do? They ghost on it. They're nowhere to be found. That's a pretty terrible situation. Um, I wonder if, if you've ever done anything that made you want to hide like that. That made you just kind of want to ghost on life for a little bit. And I mean really hide. Hide in such a way, or hide that part of you in such a way that, that you just deem that I will never let anyone see this. And in that place, we, we hang up the sign that says no comment ever. And on the flip side of it, in, in orange letters, it says, no trespassing. <laughs> Do not come in here. You are not welcome. That, uh, that condition, that thing that leads you to hang up the sign of say, no comment or no trespassing, that, that thing, that impulse to hide and never come out, that is part of the universal human condition after what the Bible calls the fall. Mankind's rebellion against God and his subsequent fall into sin. And that thing, that feeling that drives us inward is called shame. It's called shame. Uh, you can hardly talk about shame these days without mentioning uh, a woman named Brene Brown. Brene Brown is a, um, she's a professor, a researcher um, at the University of Houston. She is probably, in fact, the leading expert on shame and vulnerability in our world today, I would guess. She's written a lot of books by now. It's fairly famous. She says this about shame. She says, and it's on the front of your bulletin there. It says, shame drives two big tapes. So tapes, tracks, music, two big tapes. The first one says, never good enough. And the second says, who do you think you are? The thing to understand about shame, she says, is it's not guilt. Shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Guilt says, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Shame says, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. So given that definition, and it seems to be a good one, I wouldn't know to question her if it wasn't, uh, it's really not that surprising that shame affects our lives in huge, deep, numerous ways. If I could uh, try to summarize the effect on shame in our lives in a, in a nice little neat package, um, and I do this humbly because it's just such a huge topic and it reaches so far, but if I try to do that, I would say this. Shame leaves us feeling disqualified from the affection and loving attention of others. Shame leaves us feeling disqualified uh, from the affection and loving attention of others. And in tonight's encounter with Jesus, we find just that in this woman. 
And there is so much in this passage, but we're just going to be able to say a few things. The first thing I want to look at is we, us, in our midday shame. Context of this passage is kind of everything, and it frames this whole encounter. I read you a few things earlier, mentioned a few things, but there's even more going on. Look down at verse 6. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus was exhausted. He had been traveling about uh, from his journey. So he stopped to rest at Jacob's well around noon. That was a well-known place back then for a lot of reasons we can't get into. And it says that it was the sixth hour. Now that's a, that's a big deal, actually. Uh, in the Jewish kind of mindset, a day started at 6 a.m. That was hour zero. And so the sixth hour is noon. And Jesus is out at Jacob's well at noon. And lo and behold, a woman from Samaria comes out. And it seems innocent enough. Seems like she's just a normal person coming out to get water. But it wasn't. Um, And and we know it wasn't because biblical scholars hardly agree on anything. If you have a hundred different people trying to tell you what a verse means, there's going to be like 94 different interpretations of that. But they almost unanimously agree on this. That women did not come out to the well at the sixth hour. They did not come out during the heat of the day. Why would they? They would go out in the morning when the day was much cooler. They would go out in community. It was like the RUF women's small group goes to the well. That's what they did. And they would go down there because uh, A, it was cooler. B, because they would have the day's needs in front of them. They would need the water for for food and for preparation and for uh, cleaning of clothes and and anything else that they would do that day. And so they would just never go out at this time of day. So this woman is heading out in the heat of the day, bringing much discomfort on herself, going to great pain and lengths to be out there because she also needed water. What I want us to see behind why she went out there is that it was her shame that drove her out there. And that same shame drives us inward. It was that voice in her which, you know, whether she had heard it from the other women in town or whether she had just supplied it herself, you know how we're always having that conversation with ourselves about what we think about us? The thing that says, you're you're stupid, you're terrible, why'd you do that? You're so whatever, or you're awesome, you're amazing, you're the best. That thing, whether it was from outside and some other women or that thing on the inside, she is fundamentally thinking, who do you think you are? You're not like those other women. Their lives are working. Their, their families are together. Yours is a joke. She's hearing it say, you've jumped from husband to husband to husband. And what about that dude you're living with now? Who do you think you are? Shame upon shame upon shame. For her, it was strike six. She's out a long time ago. And the shame is just piling up with her. And so she walks out in the extreme discomfort because that's easier actually than facing the pain of being a failure amidst other people who aren't seemingly. So that's her. What about us? Brene Brown says that uh, for women, uh, shame is this web of unobtainable, conflicting, competing expectations about who we're supposed to be. I'm glad she said that, not me. I trust her. I trust her that she knows what she's saying here. So women, if that, if that 
hits you, then listen up. Be beautiful, be smart, be funny, be intelligent, be spontaneous, be responsible. Be, 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 be all these things at the same time and do not, do not let your life fall apart. Hold it all together in tension. So that very web is the web of shame. It's not even if you're failing so tragically at that. It's that feeling of, I've got all these things to be and do. How could I ever do it? And inevitably at some point it does start to fall apart and that increases the shame. And she goes on to say that for men, shame is not a bunch of competing, conflicting expectations. Shame is one thing. And I I can speak for one. It's absolutely right. Do not be perceived as weak. You can be almost anything. You can be you can be a man whore, you can be dumb, you can be unathletic, just do not be weak. Do not show yourself incapable of taking care of yourself. Do not be weak. According to Brown, shame is a highly is highly 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 correlated with addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, eating disorders, and many other things. Shame drove this woman out to the well at great pain and discomfort. And based on Brown's research, I want to tell us, and I wonder if shame hasn't driven us inward into all these things that are actually killing us. And I don't mean that lightly. I don't, it's probably not the best choice of words. Shame has driven us inward into all these struggles that are paralyzing us, that are actually harming us, sometimes physically, that are leading us into despair in so many ways, and yes, even at times killing us. That feeling of not just that I messed up, but I am messed up. The second thing we see about her is her shame has her alone. And this makes sense, doesn't it? That if we find ourselves and we, and we know that we're so messed up, then we don't want to be around other people. Because that either gives them an opportunity to remind us that we're messed up, or we begin to project our own failure. And as we look out at them, we have a backdrop of their success and our failure stands out all the more. And so she's out here alone. This isn't by accident. Thirteen of, of the most... Formative years of my life. From when I was 11 years old to when I was 24 years old. They were characterized by outward appearances of success. In in almost every way. And I can laugh about it now because I realize how foolish it was at the things that I chased. I won all kinds of awards. I was top 10 freshman, sophomore, junior... At OU, I did it. On the outside, I was put together. And on the inside, for 13 years, I was utterly consumed, addicted, whatever you want to call it, to sexual fantasies and to sexual exploitation in lots of different ways. And I say that with utter sadness. I say that with thankfulness at what the Lord has done in me, in the ways that he's met me in that place. But I say it 
because that shame drove me so, so far inward. And I felt so alone in the midst of that, that it almost drove me to despair in the worst way. And I want to tell you that when, when this all came crashing down for me at 24, I was living in Nashville. I was an RUF intern. I was in ministry. Let's continue that appearance of success. I was doing the right things. And relationship after relationship after relationship had failed. I had just broken up with another girl for a ridiculous reason that is also very shameful. And in that place, I had a friend call me and say, I just don't understand why you keep doing this with these girls. Why you keep dropping them. They are great girls. You should want to marry them and you keep breaking up with them. What is going on? And it was in that moment that I, that I began to not be alone. Because for the first time, in a full and transparent way, I began to tell him, this is what's going on. Is I have had a secret life, and it is ugly, and it is deep. And it was terrifying. Because I realized that as these words are coming out of my mouth, and as he was hearing my story, I didn't know if he was going to stay. Because I had lied to him for years. Shame had made me feel so alone. Is there anything that has you feeling so alone? Is there anything about your life that has driven you inward and you have said, I can never let anyone hear? Maybe it's your sexuality. Uh, Maybe it's your skin color. Maybe it's your IQ, whether high or low. Maybe it's your lack of social skills or your family or your poverty or your grades or your inability to make your life work. Whatever it is, our midday shame has us out there alone. And if that were the end of the story, it would be terrible. But Jesus has met this woman out there. and He brings a midday salvation right into the midst of her highest shame. There's several things we see about this. First, is we see the place of God in this story. And I mentioned it earlier, but look at verse 4. John says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He had to. He had to. Now look, y'all, he didn't have to. There was a well-worn path by that point all the way around Samaria. And the passage says he had to. So on a human level, he didn't have to, but in the way that Jesus, that only Jesus knew, he had to. There was something there, there was someone there that made him have to go to Samaria. And there he meets this woman. And he starts talking to her and she cannot believe it. How is it that you, verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? This woman grew up believing that she was less than because she's a Samaritan. Now let me, let me do something really important for just a second. I need to pull some things apart so we can put them back together. Um, Dan Allender, who's a Christian writer, uh, counselor, he's just an amazing man. Um, he's done a lot of work in this area. And he has very helpfully said that we need to pull apart what's called illegitimate shame from legitimate shame. Now, illegitimate shame is in our lives 
uh, or areas in our lives where we have been made to feel bad about things that aren't necessarily bad. So for this woman, she was in a situation in a culture where she had been made to feel bad because she was a Samaritan. Now, if there's echoes of that in our country's past in racism, it's true. People were made to feel bad, and let's be honest, are made to feel bad because of something about them that's not bad. That feeling of bad, or of I'm a mistake, or whatever it is there, that is illegitimate shame. And most of the social shame that we experience these days have to do with social norms. And they also are illegitimate shame. So things that um, surround body image, gender, social status, economical status, race, education levels, relationship status. Sometimes we are shamed by others for being different from the norm or the elevated position of whatever. And that is illegitimate shame. Do not hear me say it's unimportant. It is very important. And Jesus comes to her and begins to empty her of this illegitimate shame, first by just coming to Samaria. Second, by addressing her as a woman. Third, by finding out, by knowing who she is and not leaving. She would have made him unclean in the Jewish system by her prolific living. Her many husbands and the current one now. But Jesus doesn't just stop with the illegitimate shame and emptying her of that. He goes further. He offers her what's called living water, the gift of God, he says. And he introduces this idea of living water uh, that further kind of empties her of that illegitimate shame and and says, look, you can even have this. Which would have been mind-blowing for her because usually the the high prizes and the high privilege was only reserved for the Jewish people. And here Jesus is saying to this Samaritan, you can have it. Oh, wow. Maybe I'm I'm not as wrong as I've been made to feel. But actually, this is where the legitimate shame starts to play in. Because if you notice, um, as Jesus kind of goes back and forth with her, there's there's this interesting and kind of complex thing where Jesus talks to her about something that's got kind of a spiritual import to it. And she just almost like backs off or it's like she's changing the subject. She doesn't understand. We don't really know. But she keeps kind of saying like, oh, yeah, but, you know, the Jewish people say you're supposed to worship over here, but we worship over here. And Jesus just keeps coming at her and keep coming at her and says, no, let me tell you about this living water that if you drink of it, you'll never be thirsty again. And she balks and he's like, no, I'm serious. If you drink of it, you will never thirst ever again. And what he's doing in that is he's helping her through her illegitimate shame to see that she has a legitimate need. That she has legitimate shame that is caused by legitimate sin in her life. And we need to understand that. That sin causes shame. It also causes guilt. And Jesus came for that too. But it definitely causes shame as well. And her legitimate shame is what Jesus is after in this living water which would cleanse her and and take care of her deep thirst. Verse 10, Jesus says, 
If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. Then down in verse 14, the water that I will give Him will become in Him a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman responds and says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. You have to come here to draw water. And Look, let's, let's get with her for just a second. She's attracted to what he's saying. She's attracted to this idea of water that will satisfy her deep down. And yet there's this sense that she still doesn't really get it. So what has the ability to take away the legitimate shame? Third thing, the person of God, who Jesus is. So he draws her in, talks about her many husbands and and the man who's presently with her. And he says that, that true salvation and your deep thirst will be quenched. When you can find God and worship Him in spirit and truth. And she responds verse 25 and says, Yeah, I get it. When the Messiah is coming, when He comes, He will tell us all things. He will help me. He will save me. He will quench my thirst. And Jesus says, I who am speaking to you am He. I am the one you're longing for. I am the one who is going to quench your thirst. How does Jesus do that? There's a verse in Hebrews that's helpful. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. And He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, That little phrase in there, despising the shame, is everything for us in this room when it comes to our shame. Because what that word means, the the, the context of that, and, and that carries the connotation, when Jesus despises our shame, He disesteems it. He, he empties it of its power. He brings it low and says, you cannot rule over those people anymore. And what he does is he says, on the cross, I'm taking it on myself. And I am in my death, I am killing your shame. Your shame can die because I have been, I I died in your place. Your shame can be killed because I am willing to be killed in your place. And in the death of Christ, we find the death of our shame offered to us. He has come to where you offer, to where you are to offer the gift of God, the living water, the salvation, the true worship in spirit and truth. Let me close with this very short story. I was listening to a friend tell me about a story that he heard about a group of um, people, farmers in Africa, subsistence level farming. Um, they were the workers. They were out there on a cocoa bean farm day in, day out, planting, watering, tilling, harvesting cocoa beans. And all of them, certainly if you've ever done farming at all, you're curious. What does this flower smell like? What does this plant taste like? And so they would taste a cocoa bean. And cocoa beans are what? They're bitter. Very bitter. Disgusting even. And they would wonder why in the world would people ever want to buy cocoa beans? They didn't understand the full picture of what they were doing. And then one day, the owner of the field, the owner of the farm came and brought them chocolate. And they tasted chocolate and they tasted the sweetness and they realized it's worth it. 
The end goal of this is worth it. Look, y'all, following Jesus may taste bitter for a little while. Believing Him may leave a, a bitter taste in your mouth in your life. But He is coming to you and saying, I am bringing you chocolate. I am giving you what your life right now may not make sense for and in, in the midst of. I am bringing you the full picture of salvation. Friends, have you ever tasted the sweetness of Jesus? He offers it to you in His life and in His death and His resurrection. He is for you. He looks at you in your shame and says, I love you. I see you all the way down and I'm not going anywhere. And the woman hears that and she goes to her town and says, Come and tell me the one who told me all that I ever did. He knows me and He loves me. That's Jesus. Let's pray.